Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jillie Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with James Wetlaw, former chef at River Cottage and the Eagle in Farringdon, with a whole new take on the barbecue. If you go to Spain, especially in the Balearic Islands, you go to the centre of Ibiza and you walk into any restaurant, they have a massive open fire pit where they cook all their meat over fire and that is the same is true in southern spain the same is true in central spain all throughout italy i mean i was in sardinia a few years ago they were roasting whole suckling pigs over fire like there is a strong european tradition of cooking over fire but when we say barbecue we tend to think of that southern american thing for festival goers upcycling hobbyists and outdoor cooking fanatics james has come up with genius ways to super easily build your own it's so easy, I'm even going to give the Japanese Conroe a go. Before we trace the fascinating dark history of the barbecue and look at some amazing recipes, I asked him why a man who admits he can't even put up a shelf decided to write the DIY barbecue cookbook. Well, it all came from my daughter's fifth birthday party. We were on the, she asked for a, a beach barbecue and invited all the class and I said that I cook for the for the parents as well because it stretches the party out and people relax a bit more. Um and I had recently taken the drum out of my washing machine because I wanted to fire pit, but I didn't want to spend a load of money on one. And I'd seen sort of people do it on Instagram and stuff. Um, and when the party came around, I didn't want to drag all this gear that I've got down to the beach and make it three or four trips. So I thought, oh, I'll just take the washing machine drum and I'll grab a grill from the, an old grill uh, and I'll put it on top and I'll just use it and see how it goes. And it was it was brilliant and it was so successful and one of the great things about it was that it cooled down so quickly so we could just put it in the car and drive home and it was so efficient and it worked so well and it was such fun to cook on i would just it just made me think oh i wonder what else i can kind of muddle together in terms of a barbecue and so i i went to the diy store sort of a couple of days later and bought some breeze blocks and a bit of chicken wire and cooked a mutton shoulder over 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 oak on this and then I just like turned to my partner, Sushi, and just said, there's a book in this. So I got in contact with Quadril, who'd published my other two, and, and they said, yeah, put a proposal together, let's see. And Fantastic. It, and the, the first line is the book, of the book is, you know, you don't have to do DIY to do this. I can't put up a shelf. And we have just moved house, and I am not going to do any DIY in my house because I cannot put up a shelf. Well, it is quite inspiring. It's, when you said, you know, you're the dancer's equivalent of two left feet... It feels like this is a really easy book for summer for people who, I don't know, want to go to a festival, for example. Exactly. Um, I mean, I lugged famously to Latitude one year an entire cowboy cooking out outfit. Everyone laughed at me. But I tell you what, I cooked for 10 people throughout the whole of the Latitude weekend. We had the most amazing food. And it was on that tripod that you talk about. Mind you, I did take it all in cast iron. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty heavy, yeah. The sort of classic yeah. Dutch oven with three poles and a bit of chain. And you could even just put a hook and stick a duck on the bottom of it and cook it over fire. I mean, these are really, really simple, really... And, and there's nothing new in the book. And there's there's nothing that sort of... I have come to myself in a flash of genius. There's a lot. I mean, this kind of cooking has been done for centuries. I mean, that, like you said, that old sort of cowboy style. So you could always move it around. It was really portable. Um, I think with with the the sort of general idea behind it is is not just that kind of portability. It's also about like I've got a lot of those. Um, like I wrote the Big Green Egg Cookbook previously, and I'm very lucky to have a couple of Big Green Eggs, and they're amazing things, and they cook really brilliantly, but 
they are they're, they're not particularly maneuverable so you have a certain amount of portability in a couple of them but also like there are barbecue heads out there that have got all the gear but they don't have anything that no one else has and the, the thing you can do with a load of breeze box and some chicken wire or or some fire bricks and if you're a bit more skilled with some cement and you can you can actually build something that is entirely your own completely unique to you that fits into the space that you have so you might have a really awkward garden it doesn't quite fit anything in it you can just build something in the corner that actually fits and that i think is the that's one of the sort of attractions of it, I think. And also those Traegers and some of the Webbers and the big green eggs, they can be quite expensive. And if you're kind of, what, you know, barbecurious and you're not 100% sure if you really want to invest in these big bits of kit until you've got a bit more practice, go to your DIY store, spend 80 quid on a load of breeze blocks and some chicken wire, build something in your back garden, get to know if you like cooking on barbecue. And if you do, later down the line, you can invest in those sort of more technical pieces of equipment. Or build the quick Conroe. Or build the quick Conroe, yeah. I mean, tell us about that one. I've, I've never heard of this one, actually. And it is something that I am actually going to build. <laughs> I showed my husband last night and he went, oh, let's do that. I mean, that is... So easy. That would take about five minutes, wouldn't it? It would take about five minutes. I mean, the longest part of it would be to go to the DIY store and get the stuff you need for it. And you just put them on some fire bricks or some paving slabs, put them on their sides, put the charcoal in the bottom, put your grill on the top and you're done. And that is is the easiest and simplest of all of them in the book, really. And it just, those, I mean, I'm sure you've seen those sort of, those classic Japanese ovens or like barbecues. You see them in restaurants, you see them on the TV and they're amazing, but they are expensive. So why not just build your own and have a look and see if you like it. And if like in two years when you've mastered it, you think I really want to upgrade now, at least you'll be confident in knowing that you've mastered the thing or just keep the one you've got. Yeah. I mean, that is what's different about this, isn't it? It's about mastering the thing. I mean, everybody's done a barbecue. We've been doing barbecues for years, but actually we're quite late to the party in doing it like it's been done in, for example, you know, America and Australia and, you know, all over the world. And you do talk a lot. And this is the bit I love about the book is the history, Uh, you know, really enriching our understanding of what barbecuing is is and where it comes from and you know i've talked about it recently with melissa thompson i've talked about it with kalpner wolf you know there is a rich pedigree of barbecuing coming from you know very old traditions yeah tell us a little bit about the dark history of the barbecues just remind people of where it comes from yeah well i mean the word the word itself barbecue comes from the spanish barbacoa which which came to the spanish when they were when they invaded haiti um and the actual word um doesn't refer to the cooking of meat on a barbecue what it refers to is the wooden frame and that wooden frame is used for a lot of things by the indigenous people they used these wooden frames for a lot of things smoking meat was one thing but they also used them as beds and they used them for drying frames and they used them for laying out the dead and i think what happened was when the spanish conquistadors asked what it was they said it was a barbacoa and they mistook the name of the cooking of the meat for the frame that was actually being discussed. And that, I think, is where it comes from. Um, I think it's important to understand that all of the American barbecue heritage that we have has its roots in slavery. And I think that you... Mm. I couldn't write about some of the techniques that come directly from those sources without acknowledging them and without writing about how they came to be. Because for me, that's not... it's not about wokeism or any of that nonsense it's just about acknowledging the fact that the that this cooking 
technique came from somewhere to us and we should rather than it being something that was handed down through a uh is now become a very sort of white orientated industry in the uk and actually it comes from its roots are in in black slavery and i think that needs to be acknowledged yeah no absolutely but then you talk about how in southern america um you know it was it was the thing that african americans used to gather around but then that was appropriated by people in power tell that story that's one of the most amazing things for me I think one of the most amazing things for me is that the the enslaved and indentured people in the United States, if you've ever seen Gone with the Wind, they have these amazing big parties and they have all this incredible food and they never explain where it comes from. And all of that food and all of that waiting and all that service, that was all done by black slaves who were... They weren't paid, they were indentured, they were tortured, they were kept in, in terrible, hideous conditions... And that was what they did. That that kind of that kind of pig smoking was a was a huge part of one of the things that they were they were enslaved to do was prepare the food. It is amazing to me and shows the power of the human spirit and the power of food that as soon as the emancipation came, black people didn't abandon that at all. In fact they embraced it and they 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 took it as their own and it became one of the few things that black people were allowed to do and and were it was almost like if you were cooking in the South and you wanted to have a big party, you needed to get black people to do it because they were known as the best people to do it. And it is incredible to me that they that, that was part of their indentured and enslaved task. And yet they didn't reject it completely. In a way, the black people rejected farming as a... I had a long chat with a friend of mine in Trinidad about this, and she said that it's really hard to get black people to work on the land in Trinidad because it still has that connection with slavery. So that farming tradition was rejected, but the cooking wasn't. And I think, and there are a couple of reasons for that, which, I mean, I am not the source for this mm. stuff. And it's Jessica B. Harris, uh, it's Michael P. Twitty, uh, and it's uh, Adrian Miller, the people that I draw on, really, who are all black writers who have expertise in this field. Um, and they've all written about this extensively. And if you're interested in it, then go and find yeah. them and read their stuff because it's amazing. But what Adrian says is that it's more about it being part of the church and eventually part of politics that really kept that sort of barbecue tradition alive in the black communities, specifically churches. Churches used it for a lot of fundraising. So, and the great, there's a great line in Adrian Miller's book and they, where it became a political thing to have these big barbecues and they called it stuffing the ballot, which I think is just a lovely phrase. Um, so yeah, there's, and there's a, there's a guy, um, who is the most, one of the most remarkable people I follow on social media called Howard Conyers, who is a, cultural historian pitmaster and on the side a nasa rocket scientist <laughs> just the most amazing man and he is documenting the he's documenting at the moment he's doing a lot of anthropological barbecue history about the original black pitmasters and trying to trace where they went post-emancipation and it's an amazing story it's genuinely i mean actually reading about the doing the backstory and reading about the slave trade and is absolutely horrific and harrowing and it's incredible to me that these people had the they had the strength of will and character and determination to keep some of those cooking traditions alive in the way that they did mm. and what michael uh what michael twitty talks about is like and jessica b harris talks about is how there was a creolization of american food as it became more west african yeah. because the and there's lots of history that jessica b harris writes about how the women of the head of the household started to complain that their food was becoming creolized and they said these are these aren't like traditional british flavors they're there we're getting 
like okra in our food and we're getting chili in our food and that the the spirit and determination of these people to keep their identity when everything else has been torn away from them their their rights their privileges their names their family all of it has been ripped out of them by this appalling slavery and yet they kept some of their identity alive in their food and that is it is there's a like i just find that unbelievable that there is this this strength of character in these people who and and how says it himself he says like these people couldn't read they couldn't write but they kept their identities by hiding food in their hair you know like by by and like you would you the individual slave communities enslaved people communities would be would be held together and then they'd be ripped apart as they were resold resold throughout the south and and those barbecue traditions if you if you look at a map of barbecue traditions in the u.s and overlay it with a map of slavery it covers it perfectly you know virginia where the tobacco started that was where the original barbecue all comes from there's a great book called virginia barbecue i can't remember what the guy's name is and he says it's the it's the it's the only indigenous post-invasion food in america yeah and it's barbecue because it's that fusion of cultures yeah it's a fascinating subject. I know. And I saw uh, Jessica B. Harry's talk to Mandy Oliver about it at the British Library Food Season last year at the opening yeah, um, she session. Was yeah. She was absolutely amazing. And, you know, and also, you know, big up for the Netflix series, High on the Hog. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it yeah. does tell a lot of that story. Yeah. So, you know, everybody go and uh, watch High on the Hog and read Jessica B. Harry's. But I feel like because of the position that I find myself in as this white middle class guy, it's my all I'm doing with that is amplifying the voices of other people that have told the story better and trying to give that to a wider audience so we have a better understanding of where the food comes from. Absolutely. And we enjoy it more. You have taken it and run with it in your river cottagey kind of uh, eagle, gastro, pubby, cabrito, <laughs> goatee. All your history all, all combines in this. It is subject. a bit of a hodgepodge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah. It, no, it just brings it all together. We are the sum of our stories, are we not? And this is where you've got to now. Um, take us to your first food moment, which is, is the whole pig smoker. Why did you choose that one? Well, this actually came from the shoot for the book because i had put this whole pig smoker in the book so we obviously needed to photograph it which posed a problem and the problem was that what do you who am i going to feed this to if i build it like i can't justify cooking a pig and then having like 60 kilos of meat and not anything to do with it so my friends ashley and kate at trill farm garden uh it was their 20th wedding anniversary and coincidentally i'd cooked for their 10th wedding anniversary obviously 10 years ago and done a goat on an asado for them and they did say would you mind doing this and i said yeah absolutely brilliant i'll do it but would you mind if i do this thing and have the shoot at the same time and they said that would be amazing because obviously we could then we could then do the whole thing um and they'd have some photos and stuff which which and it worked it worked brilliantly so it was the last really hot day of last summer trill farm garden is this beautiful garden in the devon countryside where they grow the most amazing organic fruit and veg and salad i mean their salad mix is a world class genuinely world class product it's just unbelievable what they do on this kind of five acres of land is incredible um so we got there really early in the morning we built the smoker up put the pig in the chicken wire got this thing going and so people began to gather about two o'clock and we'd be gently smoking this pig all day um and i built one i built one of the other barbecues as well the open face barbecue on the breeze blocks got just dumped with a load of veg like right at the end of august so you can imagine what it was like tomatoes and courgettes and aubergines and loads of herbs and it was just it was incredible 
Um, and then the Three Daughters Dairy people turned up with some soft goat's cheese and we managed to make that into a salad with the tomatoes. It was amazing. And then we, when the pig was done, after it took about nine hours, we took it out, laid it out on the table, lifted the skin off, which comes off like a shell, and then underneath is all this beautiful pulled meat. And we broke it all up with a, with a couple of the Alex Pole tongs. Uh, and it fed 120 people. And as, and as everybody, like I'd been working all day, I was covered in barbecue soot and grease. And like it was hot and sweaty. And, but I just stood, I stood back and looked at all these people. And they, as they formed snake, this queue snaked all the way around the garden. And there was this whole pig. And like it was a beautiful day. The cider was flowing. It was a great, there was some live music. And I just thought, that is amazing. Like it's just such a it, it goes it goes down as one of my favourite cooking experiences of all time. Just the sort of conviviality of it, the fact that everybody comes over and lifts the lid up and wants to talk to you about how you've cooked what you've cooked. They're interested in the history of it, as we talked about earlier on. They're interested in how yeah. you've done it, why you've done it. Like it just it was almost like you know at a dinner party you have a centerpiece. Well, this was like a dinner. There's like an extended version of that. You have this centerpiece, which is this pig smoker, and everybody gets involved. And a real icebreaker. Everybody comes and talks to you. It was just a fantastic, fantastic event. And that's why, like, I think putting it, you can do it in a half, so you don't have to do it for 120 people. And if anybody out there is having like a stag weekend or a hen weekend and they want to feed a lot of people, I wholly recommend doing a whole pig smoker. It is brilliant fun. And it's the nearest thing to that barbacoa that you were talking about. I mean, that's basically yeah. it, isn't it? The shape yeah, of it. That, was it that was Haitian it? barbacoa was exactly... And that also the other thing that that comes from is a lack of refrigeration. So instead of keeping stuff cold, you'd keep it warm. Yeah. And that way people... There was no set... The Haitian Indians had, um, had no... Uh, fixed meal times because people were out doing whatever they did so they keep this thing warm for two or three days and you come and eat it as you could which is a way of keeping it fresh in inverting corpus um, but it, what it also is is uh, the plantation pigs when they were in the in the cotton plantations and the tobacco plantations in the deep south they would dig trenches and then they fill the trenches with the with the wood and then they'd lay the pigs over the top of it and all it, it's exactly the same technique just elevated above the ground so you don't have to build the pit you build the frame above it yeah, yeah. i think it was Keltner wolf who told me the story of um one of the people who contributed a recipe for uh, a barbecue in her book eat share love um which was about how you had to kind of bury your meat because you didn't want the smoke to give away where you were yeah in the stealaways uh, yeah yeah absolutely yeah. i'll go into that a little bit in the book there was one of the that one of the things that the enslaved people used to do was called a stealaway and they would so if the if the master of the house was away you might be able to steal a pig I mean, some of the slaveholders allowed allowed um, sort of gatherings of, of enslaved people, and but very few did. And the ones that didn't, sometimes, and that was about keeping your identity and keeping your culture. It was like you'd steal a pig, you'd run into the forest, and you'd cook for a, and for an event, just so you could have a little bit of your own time with your own people, uh, with your own identity. And I think that it's very like we we feel so detached from that now. But it was you know it was only. 120 130 years ago it's not it isn't ancient history and uh, yeah and i and i do feel very strongly that the that because barbecue culture is growing so much in the uk i think it's important for us to understand where it has its roots yeah you know, to go from there to your washing machine barbecue, which is your second <laughs> food moment. I mean, it just sums it all up, isn't it? How far we have travelled with this simple cooking technique. So tell us how you make a barbecue out of upcycling an old washing machine drum. 
Well, once your washing machine is broken, which will happen to all of us at least once or twice in our lives, um, you take a, a power drill to it. And it was so, I mean, it's one of those things like when you get to it, you go, of course it's like that. Why didn't I think of that before? So you take the frame off and then you realise there's electronics and water in this thing. So obviously they need to be separated pretty sturdily. And I, I just, it hadn't, it just hadn't occurred to me, but obviously, obviously that's the case. So once I'd dismantled the outside of it, you realize there's this plastic sort of molded frame that's grew, that's sort of glued and screwed together pretty sturdily because it's got to separate the water from the electric. So once you manage to get that off, then which you can do with a screwdriver um the the last bit that's really tricky to get off is where the motor attaches to the drum at the bottom because that is really really the, what they do with that is actually it looks like they set the plastic around it in the factory so once i'd unscrewed all i could unscrew in the end i just took a sledgehammer to it and smashed it to pieces and smashed <laughs> smashed the plastic off so you're left with this so what you're left with actually is this drum as you can see on the inside but yeah. beneath it you've got this little stand that you can put into the ground and then you put three blocks around it and it stands up perfectly and it's the obviously there's this upcycling recycling using womble nature of it which is really appealing yeah but there's also Love just it. the functionality of it because it's got these holes in it obviously where the water comes in it allows loads of airflow through, so it burns really efficiently. Mm. Um, so I always use wood in it rather than charcoal because it can just get too hot with charcoal. So you put the wood in, you let the wood burn down to embers, and then you've got this amazing, perfect... I mean, I've used everything from a cake rack to an, an old Big Green Egg sort of Weber grill on the top of it. For some reason, those Weber and Big Green Egg ones are all the same size, and they all fit the top of this washing machine perfectly. So it... it uh, and when we, it was my daughter's fifth birthday party that I, and I took it down to the beach to cook for her classmates and stuff, as I said earlier. And the great thing about it is not only that it works really well, but when you finish cooking on a barbecue, you need to put the thing back in the car to take it home. It is just, it's a fantastic thing. And I'm, it's probably the piece of equipment I'm, I am most proud of because it just has great functionality. And everybody that looks at it, like I've had it on the beach in Lyme Regis along the front and I've, when I've cooked with friends before, and everyone that looks at it goes, God, that's a good idea. And that makes me go, oh, I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> great. No, I, absolutely. Anna, can I, can I just say that we got ours from eBay? <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely right. They're brilliant. And I shall be using it this weekend when I'm at my own barbecue. Fantastic. Um, your third and fourth food moments are two recipes from the book and they are absolutely fantastic. But can I just do a big old shout out for the vegetarian recipes, which I'm going to be doing loads of. I yes. think they're some of the best vegetarian recipes that I've seen. Oh, that's very, very kind of you to say. So very, very simple. Um, how influenced were you from the, your time at the River Cottage? <laughs> I can remember Hugh looking at me over the pass. He's, he's often very succinct and he gets to the point and he, his eyes bored into me and goes, it's just lazy to rely on meat all the time, James. And I thought, you know what? You've got me there. And I've never forgotten it. Like when you get told off by Hugh over the pass, you never forget it. Because, and it's true. Like it does require a little bit more thought because it's not as easy as just getting a steak or a piece of chicken or a burger, which is almost, they come in these ready cookable forms. And it is, it does take a little bit more thought and it's stepping out of your comfort zone a little bit. And in other areas of my cooking, I do say to people, try and get out of your comfort zone a little bit. Don't always cook the same thing. Like experiment with new stuff. 
Well, these are super easy. I mean, it's purple sprouting broccoli with grilled courgettes and warm yeah. lentils, grilled little gem with za'atar, pistachio and garlic yogurt, uh, chili and cumin baked potatoes. I'm also going to do the um, sweet yeah, potatoes. Yeah, they are good stuffed with black beans and feta absolutely brilliant but let's move on to your third food moment um chopped rabbit chorizo and aioli yes why did you choose that one because my background is professional cooking and this this recipe comes from the eagle in farringdon which is the the original and best gastro pub it's been going 35 years now and it's still exactly the same as it was on day one um and I, I adore it. It's the best cooking job I've ever had. And they're currently looking for a chef. So if anyone out there wants to get the best, mm. the best cooking job of all time, they can go and get a job <laughs> at... I'll tell you how good the Eagle is. It's only ever had three head chefs in the 35 years that it's been going. And that wow. is... Inc- I mean, it's staff yeah. retention says all you need to know about it. And yeah. one of the things I try to do in the, in the books that I've written about barbecues is move away from that sort of American-influenced large bits of meat, very slowly smoked, lots of sticky sweet sauces, and try and integrate into barbecue stuff we're more familiar with. And I accept the rabbit's not something that we're all Mm. familiar with, but that kind of modern European cooking melded with sort of barbecue techniques. And again, it's nothing new. If you go to Spain or you go to, especially in the Balearic Islands, you go to the center of Ibiza and you walk into any restaurant, they'll have a massive open fire pit where they cook all their meat over fire. And that is the same is true in southern Spain, the same is true in central Spain, all throughout Italy. I mean, I was in Sardinia a few years ago. They were roasting whole suckling pigs over fire. Like there is a strong European tradition of cooking over fire that we, that we, but when we say barbecue, we tend to think of that Southern American thing because of the cultural homogeneity yeah. of the US. And that, so yeah. what I try and do with, with the books that I write and the recipes that I choose is introduce stuff that is more familiar to a European cook because I think that's a better way for people to try and start cooking stuff over fire because the two things that will stop people from, well, it's kind of the same thing, but a lack of confidence in their own ability. And that might be in the recipe and it might also be in the technique you're using for cooking it. And if you can remove one of those obstacles, which is why when I wrote the Bigger in Egg book, the first recipe I put in it was a roast chicken because everyone can do that. If you're into cooking, you can roast chicken. The same is true in this book. There are recipes in there that you will have cooked in on a conventional oven and therefore can translate that yeah. skill to a barbecue and then you can get better at barbecue and then you open up a whole new vista of flavors and techniques and all totally. sorts of stuff i think that's a brilliant attitude. it's all about accessibility it's all yeah. about accessibility i have moved so far away from truckers caps tattoos cold beers you know that kind of stuff yeah that's that that you need to we need, that is not what we need this to book move is. And it's not what barbecue should be about. Like exactly. Barbecue should be about, as Michael Pollan says, no one ever comes in and huddles around a microwave. It's all about, you know, people come and they, they gather around fire. And you want to do that. You want everybody to get that experience of conviviality cooking over fire. It is literally in our DNA. Your fourth food moment is your legacy. Uh, bringing Cabrito goat into our, all our lives is a game changer. Um, I, any chefs I talk to in any restaurant that serves goat, it's always cabrito meat but what you did was really important you you brought the issue to public consciousness tell us a little bit about that and then tell us what you do uh, to barbecue your goat well my, my kids quite enjoy the fact that i'm known as the goat man they they do they do they do quite enjoy that yeah and and cabrito has come a long way i mean last year we crowdfunded 
almost £300,000 to build our own butchery facility, uh, which was a massive step forward and a reflection of how far things have changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, another reflection of how far things have changed is when we first started, there were no goat recipes on the BBC website. Mm-hmm. And now there's about 50. And that, I mean, it's these little things that are just markers of how it's come into the culture. Just remind anyone who doesn't know why we should be eating goat, um, why we should be eating goat. Because the historical practice of dairies is to euthanise the billy goats because they don't produce any milk. So the economic driver of the goat industry is more milk. Um, Obviously, lactation is required to produce milk. You require pregnancy for lactation. Pregnancy has a definite outcome, and in most cases it will be two kids and uh, a 50-50 split of males and females means that before Cabrito came along, the industry was probably euthanizing 80,000 billy goats a year. Which, I mean, you just say it out loud. I mean, I've said this before. I've talked about this almost every day in my life for almost 12 years, and I still can't believe that that happens. <laughs> you know, it's just insane. And to the industry's enormous credit, it realized this was a big problem. And when Cabrito came along, we, we got an awful lot of support from Delamere and from St. Helens, who were the two big dairy brands. And now, although we're not 100%, we haven't 100% moved away from all the euthanizing, we are so much closer than we were 10 years ago. And all it really needs now is uh, one of the large supermarkets to take on goat, and the problem will be solved. And there are now moves within the industry coming from the supermarkets that supply the meat telling the the, um dairies that they can no longer euthanize any of their billy goats and yet at the same time those those supermarkets those retailers won't take the product on themselves to sell it which puts the farmers in a very difficult position the thing i think that's important about all of this is that it turns goats into dual purpose animals which is the holy grail of farming you want an animal that produces a really high quality liquid milk from which you get the butter and the cheese and that we're all familiar with and on the other hand you get an amazing meat product and that way you have a new ind- a new um uh, income stream for the farmers uh and all of their cost base gets divided over two products rather than one so that i think is a really really important thing it's part of the regenerative farming uh landscape isn't it yeah the the thing about managing goats on a large scale is that the all the veterinary advice is that you house them so they are so all of the commercial dairy herds in the uk are housed which was always a bit of a prickly subject for cabrito because when we first started did we want to get into a industry that was essentially zero graze i have educated and been educated myself enormously in the past 12 years and all the veterinary advice on a large scale is that you need to keep the goats indoors because goats have very sensitive feet they're not used to wet ground uh, and you also need to manage the diets of goats on a large scale in order for them to be happy healthy and and producing i mean i'm in france at the moment and there's a million milking goats in france and they are all housed for exactly the same reason so all the commercial herds are housed so that's not to say that the farmers are doing bad things i mean they're doing that on the veterinary advice and the and it, they've removed almost removed all soya from their diets because it's better and easier to to feed them the rapeseed husks because they have the protein in them and they grow them themselves uh, so there is it is difficult given my river cottage background and my sort of my outlook on sustainability to spend my time justifying a zero grows a zero grows dairy system on the other hand, mm. I'm not ar- arrogant enough to believe that I know better than the vets that look after these animals 
all the time. So you have to take the professional's advice. Well, it is part of the industry, isn't it? Well, at least the billy goats are not being euthanised at birth anymore and they get, what, six six months of life? And that, exactly for us, was the choice that we made. Do we get involved with this industry and try and stop the yeah. euthanisation or do we leave it alone because we don't agree with the zero graze? And for me, the wastage was a much bigger issue than right. the zero grazes um, because it would have continued with or without me. Yeah. So, yeah, they get they we tend to we kill on weight rather than on age. So we get them to 50 kilos live weight, which is anywhere between six and seven and a half months. Mm hmm. And of course, it's a massive um, meat in so many different cultures, isn't it? Tell us what you do to, to barbecue a goat. Well, yeah, I mean, British culture is probably the only one where we don't have goat as a staple meat. And that's because we had the wool trade mm. over the last 800 years. The wool trade grew and sort of kicked goat out of the farming system as it was replaced by as it was replaced by sheep for the wool um but in the yeah, in the book there is a rack of goat with walnut chutney and that is a nod to um a friend of mine shanti busan who's the executive chef at brigadiers in central london which is the best india restaurant in the country in my opinion um and again that's going back to what we were talking about earlier on about where my influences come from i'm lucky enough to deliver into some of these restaurants and i get to meet these chefs and see what they're doing and i get inspired by the amazing food that they're doing um and this walnut chutney comes almost directly from shanty um and it and it also for me there is a and this is very much a personal taste there is a sweet spot between barbecue and indian food which for me is perfection I think the way that you have these complex layered dishes when they're done right in Indian food, where you have the the spices and you might have a bit of dairy with ghee or you might have a bit of that, that squeaky cheese they use in, in, in Indian food. And then you have these sort of layers of fresh herbs on top of all the spices and then have the flavour of the meat or the, or the fish or, or whatever the protein is you're using. And then if you add to that the flavour that comes from the wood and the charcoal, I think you're taking things to a, to a completely different place. And like Indian food on the barbecue for me is, you know, stick me on death row and feed me Indian barbecue and I'll be all right. Thanks for listening. It's a tricky one, that ethical dilemma about goats. If you want more information on what high welfare means to animals, I normally go to Compassion and World Farming. And what they say about zero graze is that the best practice in goat farming is that they should have access to scrub, woodland or pasture for most of the year. Do check into my Substack for extra bites each episode and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Smith, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>